This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of a crime that some may find distressing. So listener discretion is advised. I feel that her story should always be put out there all the time. Because you never know, somebody might actually remember something. And it's the least we can do for her to try and find the person that killed her. You know, and also for our family's sake, you know, even though she's our sister and she's gone, at least it's something we can do for her. What would you like in the future? What would be your ideal? Ideally, to get somebody convicted of a murder, you know, so that they they can pay for it. But even if that's the case, we, we never find out who it is, at least if we put it out there, the person that killed her, you know, he's not going to be having an easy life if he knows this keeps coming up all the time. You know, he's always going to be looking over his shoulder, wondering if this is the time that the police are going to come and get him, you know. And that's all we can do at the moment. In the year of 1961, throughout England and Wales, there were 265 instances of homicide and eight of child abduction. For the past two episodes, I've been looking into one of those cases, the abduction and murder of 12-year-old schoolgirl Linda Smith. If you've not heard the first two parts, I highly advise that you go back and listen to them before this one, because you'll have missed key information that I'm going to refer to today. I'd also like to share with everyone that this episode marks the end of season one of Outlines. I'll be taking a short break to work on season two, but I hope to bring you a couple of bonus shows in the downtime. I'm also really excited to tell you that to coincide with the release of this episode... I'm going to be launching a Patreon page to help fund future series of the show. As I move further and further away from my home county, the cost of visiting locations will increase. And unfortunately, right now, I can't afford to fully fund these myself. I think it's really important that I'm able to continue to visit and describe the places where these crimes took place. And I'm hopeful that you agree. And anything you wish to give would be much appreciated. With your help, I know that I can continue to improve outlines in the months and hopefully years to come. All the information and link to the Patreon page will be available in the description box below. I'd also like to thank everyone who has listened to and supported the show over the past three months. Your input and thoughts on the cases I've covered have been insightful and moving, and I hope that you all wish to continue on this journey with me. And on that note... Let's get back to what's important, to Linda, and to the investigation into her murder. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines Podcast. first started researching I was convinced of his guilt now I'm not so certain three alibis um, 
the, the movement, her movements, according to the timeline, wouldn't fit with her mm. being here. And uh, it's just, there's, it's very difficult because there are, there are lots of things, uh, circumstantial evidence that points towards him. Mm. And you hear one piece of circumstantial, then another piece of circumstantial, and you think, well, how many more pieces are there going to be? As Richard and I talk about this man, the one person who was ever linked to Linda's murder, we're standing just off of Earlscone High Street, in an area now called The Grove. It's a little cul-de-sac, surrounded at the back by relatively new buildings, with a small parking area. In 1961, accounts say you'd have found yourself in a much bigger yard, with garages for shopkeepers to park, and a women's toilet. The area connected the backs of several high street shops and was accessible by turning up between two buildings, a butcher's and the co-op cafe with its bakery attached behind. It's to this cafe that the cobbler headed after talking to Linda on the 16th of January, ten minutes at most before she went missing. But we're not here because of him. We're here because of the baker. I'm sorry, but I won't be using his name at any point during this episode. And as Richard is keen to remind us... We should bear in mind that the baker officially was never treated as a suspect. He was only ever treated as a witness. And please do keep this in mind. Over the course of the episode, I'm going to try to present the facts and do my best to balance them. But as Richard said earlier, you hear one bit of circumstantial evidence... And then you hear another, and another, and you think, how can it possibly be anyone else? But he's never been arrested for a crime. In 2013, Suffolk Police reviewed Linda's case thoroughly, and they still didn't feel as if they had the evidence to charge him. So I'm just going to tell you what we know. I'll talk you through all the facts presented at Boxford Court where the inquest took place. And I'll let you think about it. And like the inquest jury had to... I'll let you decide for yourselves. Was Linda killed by the baker, or was she killed by a person or persons unknown? As winter became spring, and spring moved towards summer, the inquest was continually postponed while the police gathered evidence, and Linda's parents, Robert and Patricia, tried to continue their lives as best they could. Robert was working hard at the foundry, and Patricia had the two babies, Melvin and Fiona, at home with her during the day, as well as the older kids in the evening, who had by then returned from their stay at Rainhatch Farm. To the external viewer, it may have appeared as if life had begun to regain routine, but Robert was anxious and frustrated, and he wanted to know why the police were not arresting the suspect that he believed was responsible for the murder of their daughter. I asked Sheena about how Linda's death affected their father, and she told me... Well, obviously he was worried. 
Um, I don't know, they were just our mum and dad. Um, and that was just the whole package. They were sad together. Um, there wasn't much laughter for a long time. Um, yeah, I think they just went through the motions of doing stuff. But Robert wasn't just going through the motions while he waited for life to begin to feel normal again. In mid-May of 1961, on the recommendation of Reuben Hunt, Robert's employer at the foundry, he began to seek private legal aid and approached Sudbury-based solicitor, the flamboyant Dale Parkinson, who offered his services to Robert free of charge. On the 28th of May, Dale visited the Smith's home and he and Robert talked the case through. Patricia left the men alone to discuss their options and when Richard talked to her about this meeting, she could tell him very little. And from what I gathered when I asked Jane about it, her mother didn't talk much about Linda at all. Mum and Dad never talked about it. It's only through my husband, Brian, that I knew a bit more because I knew nothing about it. We never asked, Mum never said anything. I knew who Linda was, but we never, I never asked, don't suppose I never asked her what happened to her. You know, don't sort of, I don't think Mum, Mum never talked about it until one day I left, it's a book called The Essex Triangle, and I got it from the library. And I, for some reason I left it on the set here at my house. And I thought, Oh, my goodness, a bit about Linda. But before I could take it, Mum was reading, I said, do you want me to take that, Mum? She said, no, no. And then she opened it, I said, it's got about Linda. She said, don't worry. And then she started talking about it, you know, and I said, I never knew she'd got murdered at Polstead. You know, so... Me and Brian went there once, and that's where he went. He, I got more information at my husband Brian than I did my mum. So I'm through this book that I um, knew a bit more from Mum. And she was fine about it. That's the only time Mum talked about it. In his book, Richard says that the first time Patricia knew the outcome of Robert and Dale Parkinson's discussion was when she read in the newspaper that, and here I'm quoting, Mr Parkinson was conducting his own investigations with a view to bring about private prosecution against a man whom he believed was guilty of Linda's murder. At this point... The baker had not been named, and the news reported only that there was someone that the solicitor suspected of guilt. On Wednesday the 7th of June, he presented Chief Constable Ridd of the Suffolk Police with what he termed new evidence. This new evidence of Mr Parkinson's was not so much new as inconsistencies in old evidence. At the time, very little was reported about the nature of these findings but Mr Ridd was concerned enough to pass on the information to the Director of Public Prosecutions. Dale gave the police one week to act on what he'd given them. The week passed, and nothing happened, so Mr Parkinson pushed ahead with his application, and on Friday, June the 16th, four days before the inquest was due to begin, accompanied by two staff members and his black-and-white dog, who stayed behind in the car, he made his way to Boxford Court, to hear the decision on a private prosecution. It took the five magistrates sitting in private for more than two hours to reach their verdict. The evidence they were considering, 
included 30 documents and four photographs, as well as testimony from Scotland Yard's Jack Mannings, head of the investigation. When the decision was announced, it was done so in an open court. The chairman, Colonel K.A. Crockett, said, We have given a lot of careful thought to this case, and it has taken a lot of time. After most careful consideration of the relevant facts, my fellow justices and I wish to say, and we are unanimous, we are not satisfied upon the merits that there is sufficient prima facie case in support of this information, and the application for a warrant is accordingly refused. Nowadays, the old court at Boxford is a private residence, and it stands innocuous on the side of Cox Hill, surrounded by red brick walls and tall shrubs. You enter under an arch, and follow steep stone steps up towards the building itself. The road it sits on is only just wide enough for two cars to pass, and now it seems the picture of tranquillity. But on June the 20th, 1961, Cox Hill was a hive of activity, As Robert and Patricia walked the steps to where the inquest was to be held, they were surrounded by pressmen, television cameras and hordes of onlookers. They were there to be witness, along with other key players in the case, including Sheena, who was 11 at the time. It's vague, but I remember two policemen, I think, came, or two detectives, or two men anyway, and I think I went there with... I thought I went there with a friend, a, a best friend of mine, and um, and my auntie Ivy, great auntie Ivy, I think she she came, and obviously my mum and dad. But I remember when I went into the court and had to testify, um, I was quite blinkered because I was really scared and I was afraid to look around, you know, and I just kept focused, direct line, because I only went in there, didn't sit through it, we only went in there to give my bit of evidence. Sheena's memory of that day is about as vague as it could be, and who can blame her? She was an 11-year-old girl, asked to give evidence at the inquest into the death of her sister. She was there to testify that she and Linda used to go around the back of the co-op bakery, that Linda used the toilet behind there, and that they knew the baker, an allegation that he firmly denied. When I asked Sheena about this, she said that she didn't remember the baker, but back then, she did tell the court that she knew him. And I know, I know we used to go around the back of the bakers, um, again, to go to the toilets and that, but I don't think we spent an awful lot of time around there. Eventually, the coroner, Thomas Wilson, excused Sheena from the stand and told the jury that she was too scared and overawed by proceedings for her replies to be held up. It's almost impossible to imagine the strain that these events would have put upon a child, especially with all the other witnesses, including the baker, present in the courtroom. On the 8th of June, just before he would have found out about the attempted private prosecution, the baker gave a one-off interview with a national newspaper. He talked to reporter Don Short from his self-built bungalow in Great Hawksley. 
and the article he's described as fresh-complexioned, which I think is journalistic speak for young, in an open-neck shirt, fawn pullover and grey flannels. Behind him, the article says, stands his pretty brunette wife. The baker told the reporter, It is true, Scotland Yard detectives have interviewed me and taken no further action. But this is not sufficient for some people. The rumour and gossip still persist. People point to me and say, there he is. He went on to shrug his shoulders and say, I don't know why I was suspected. But this wasn't true. He knew exactly why he was a suspect. All they all they knew was it was um, like a lacquer type of uh, paint flex. Yeah, possibly, possibly from um, a paint sprayer. These flex are what the case against the baker really boils down to. There are other things as well. Two sets of footprints and heel impressions left in the field off of Stackwood Road where Linda's body was found. But no cast could be taken, and so they were matched to the baker's shoes in size and shape only. Then there was the wrapped co-op mint, found just outside the gates of the field, but this probably had nothing to do with the murder. Then there was the location. The baker had grown up in the village of Nayland, just a five-mile drive away from Stackwood Road, and the police believed that because of the remote location, Linda's killer would have had to have been familiar with the area. But the baker said, I do not know the spot where Linda was found, and to my knowledge, I have never been along that road. Lastly, there were the different particles found on Linda's clothing, and some of these are difficult to explain. At the inquest, when Mr Lewis Nichols, director of Scotland Yard's forensic laboratory, stood up to testify, he was asked if there were three specific items of forensic science which linked Linda and the baker. He replied, I would rather say that there are three items which are on Linda Smith's clothing and are on the overcoat and blankets of the baker. He went on to tell the jury that these items were wheat starch and an uncooked wheat grain, parts of the makeup of flour, which he linked between Linda's clothing and a blanket found in the baker's car. Everyone who worked in the bakery had their clothes examined for these substances, and everyone had them present. But the red particles were different. Mr Nichols found two sorts of red paint that he believed came from the same source. The first was a soluble lacquer, which contained three layers, red, yellow, red, and the other was a red, insoluble lacquer. These were found on Linda and the baker's coats, a different blanket in the baker's car, and also two small particles on the back floor of his car. Where the uh, the red flecks are concerned, they never did discover their origin you would think nowadays they would but it's not necessarily the case the red flecks were a complete mystery and still are Mr Nichols took great care in his attempt to find the sources of these flecks 
On the stand, he detailed just some of the articles he received from the police for testing. These came from a number of people, as well as Linda's body and the area around it. The items included clothing, a salesman's sample case and contents, blankets from cars, paint and tyre scrapings and sweepings and articles from the co-op bakehouse. Among many things, he made vacuum extracts from Linda's coat, the coat of the baker's wife and the baker's garage door, and removed 86 red objects of interest from the baker's bungalow and work. Without finding the source of these red flecks, police could not definitively put Linda and the baker together, despite the unlikely chance of the particles ending up in his car and on both of their clothing without them having been in contact. He did not know of the existence of these red specks until February the 28th at Sudbury Police Station, by which time police had been attempting to identify the particle's source for almost a month. The baker even theorised during the inquest that Linda had gone to the courtyard after seeing the cobbler, and maybe she was rummaging in the incinerators and got the specks on her that way. Or that she'd got into his car, which he'd left unlocked, and played around on the back seat, depositing or collecting the particles as she went. Because uh, Linda was known to frequent the lavatory at the back of the bakery, it was surmised that she could have picked it, picked these flecks up uh, from the back of the, the bakery because there was there was a rubbish tip round the back and children being children did they could you sort of like pick something up or but they never they never found anything get into the case for the baker's innocence, we need to talk about the testimony of Home Office pathologist Dr Francis Camps, who performed the post-mortem examination on Linda's body. I'm sorry, there's no easy way to present these facts, but they're important if we want to understand the timeline of that day. Dr Camps told the court that, when he arrived on Stackwood Road, he found a scarf pulled tightly around her neck and that was the cause of her death by asphyxia. There was no evidence of sexual assault, and she was still a virgin. Based on the contents of her stomach, he said, It is reasonable to say the child died the same night as she disappeared, and it is my impression that the body was put there after death, but before rigor mortis was complete. She was dumped within 12 hours of her death. The body was still supple enough for the arms to go forward. Dr Camps was asked about the way in which Linda was strangled and he said that in his view it was a firm, deliberate pull on the scarf on the right side and possibly behind. He was asked if she was sitting in the seat of a car with the driver on her right, could he do it then? He replied yes. Death would have occurred within a minute. 
but she would be unconscious within a couple of seconds, with no chance to call out or struggle. He went on to add that he found no indication from her body that she was sitting in a car when she died. I think... I think... uh, Dale Parkinson was very much out for a result. I think he saw the uh, connection between the baker and the butcher more than just a, a passing acquaintance. He thought that the butcher was alibying the baker, but there, again, for what reason? As Dale Parkinson first looked through the evidence in Linda's case, one thing stood out. On the evening of Monday the 16th of January, the baker had three alibis. When he was questioned on January the 31st, for the first time, He told police that he did not leave the bakehouse all day until about 3.45 when he left in his car and arrived home in Great Hawksley at 4.15. His wife was there and he spent the rest of the evening indoors going to bed at 9.30, which was their normal time. She was the only alibi he gave in that first interview. He had completely forgotten to mention his brother, who I'll call the student, and it wasn't until his second interview that he did remember his visit. The student arrived at the baker's bungalow at around 5.15pm, which was apparently his normal Monday routine. The baker said, he has a meal and goes back to Colchester to the technical college for evening classes. He left at approximately 6.30, and the student backed this statement up at the inquest, adding, there was nothing unusual about my brother at all that night. The third alibi, the butcher's, was the one which Dale Parkinson believed he could crack. This was the basis for that new information on which the attempt to privately prosecute had been based. The butcher worked next door to the baker and told the inquest he knew the baker well, though the baker said the only person he really knew in the village was the cobbler. But regardless, on the 1st of February, two weeks after Linda's death, The butcher came forward to say that on the day Linda went missing, he had been walking along Holt Road with his wife at about 4.05 and saw the baker driving out of the village towards Colchester. Holt Road lies at the very bottom of Earl's Cone. There was a little garage there, which is now a hand car wash. And that day, the butcher and his wife were passing the garage when they saw the baker come around the corner and sound the car horn. He waved. They waved and the baker continued on. The butcher was sure about the day, because normally they got eggs on a Monday, but that day their routine had changed. He also remembered discussing Linda's disappearance on the Tuesday morning, and talking through where he'd been the night before, although he and the baker didn't discuss seeing each other. Dale Parkinson's questioning of the butcher and the baker was aggressive and probing, but ultimately it was to little effect. He tried to imply that their stories were shaky, that they were much better friends than they were letting on, and that the butcher had been bought. But it made no difference. 
The two men were steadfast with their statements, and both appeared genuine throughout the inquest. It was on the second day of proceedings, at just after 4.30pm, that the jury retired to consider their verdict, and it took them just 20 minutes to come back with a decision. Throughout this show, I've tried to give you all of the relevant evidence, and you can come to your own conclusions. For me, like I said earlier, I just don't know. The more you entangle yourself in a case, the more murky facts become. Without motive... I struggle to understand why the baker would have committed this crime. But I hear the evidence. How close to Stackwood Road the baker grew up. His forgotten alibis. The flour found on her clothing. The red particles. Linda's proximity to the bakery at the time of her disappearance. And I think, yes, of course he's guilty. But then there were the alibis. All three. And that lack of motive. And that the paint specks were minimal and their source untraceable. And I think, actually, I don't know. He was never charged. He was never a stated suspect. He was never formally accused of any crime. When the eight-man jury returned to read their verdict, they found that Linda's death was murder by strangulation by a person or persons unknown. As the result was read, gasps broke out, but the baker's face remained expressionless. On the steps of the court, he told waiting journalists, We've lived in a private hell. I hope now everyone will believe my innocence. It's a great relief. The past two days have been a terrible strain for us. But my conscience was clear. I told the truth, and the truth was believed. sister that would be nice to get closure on that Um, but he's unlikely to do that now if he hasn't done it before Uh, so it's it'll never end you know I expect it'll go to the grave with the rest of us and sad for my mum unfortunately Since starting to research Linda's case, I've looked at hundreds of old photographs of Earl's Cone. I've walked the streets of the village on a number of occasions, and I've timed my steps between Linda's home and her great-grandmother's, between there and the newsagents, there and the cobblers, the cobblers and the newsagents, the cobblers and the bakery. I've driven the road to where Linda was killed, and mapped every possible route that the killer could have taken. I've spoken to her family, to those who went to school with Linda who have reached out on social media, to Richard, whose book I've carried around with me constantly. 
I've kept a picture of Linda on the notice board above my desk as I highlighted sentences from countless microfilm printouts. And all the time, I've tried to keep the thought of Linda alive. To remember her and her family, Robert and Patricia, and their children, who have been denied their sister. When I met with Sheena, Jane, Fiona and Petra, I was struck with their closeness, how much they laughed together or at each other, and the warmth that was so present between them. I tried to imagine Linda, just a year older than Sheena, and how she might have fitted into this family. The quiet one, with the rabbit, who was known as Little Miss Friendly around the village. I talked with Sheena about this, and she said that she thought Linda would have grown up, got married and had children, and that maybe she would have worked with animals. But we don't know. Linda was 12 years old when she was murdered. Those are a 12-year-old's dreams. If her killer is still alive now, then the chance is that he's in his 80s with children and grandchildren, and he spent all these years living a life not dissimilar to the one he deprived Linda of. He'll be nearing death himself now. And before he does die, I wonder if he'll see Linda's face and think of the lie his life has been, living with that secret. Or of Linda's parents, who died never knowing what happened to their child, and her brothers and sisters, who believe they will go the same way. He has always had the choice to tell the truth, and even now he could still stand up and admit responsibility, and give closure to a family whose whole existence changed that day, 57 years ago, somewhere between Earlscone High Street and a field just off of a remote road in Suffolk. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by me, Jess Carter. The music was composed by Elias Hardy. Thank you to Linda's family, especially Sheena, Jane, Fiona and Petra for their time voices and support in the making of these episodes. And thank you to Richard White, whose input and writing I couldn't have done without.